0: How to Diet, Enough or Too Much, William Blake, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 1793. Much of romantic thought is about selfhood and about the process of catching your inner feelings as they fly. Romanticism looks within and encourages self-attention, and so does the kind of thinking encouraged by these podcasts. This is how it should be. We live our lives best when, as well as thinking about the day-to-day external matters of our life, we are also mindful of ourselves. Ourselves in the strict sense of that term, and aim for a state of balance between the two. In an ennobling interchange, as Wordsworth calls it in the prelude, of action from within and from without. From within, interiority is of crucial importance to romantic thought, as it is to our well-being. So let us consider another important form of that inwardness, examine that which we deliberately put into our bodies, food, and contemplate the connections between romantic poetry and philosophy and what we eat. Eating is one thing, of course, and romanticism is another. But these two seemingly disparate cultural forms were actually linked. What we eat, what is best to eat, and what not to eat, the decisions which make up our diet, were all highly contentious matters in the late Georgian period. We should not forget that the term diet does not always signify an effort to lose weight. Instead, it has historically often meant a body's overall regimen in terms of its consumption of food. And in this sense, diet was a very important philosophical concept for the Romantic poets. Though the Romantics, as we will see, can also teach us some lessons about losing weight. In his final novel, Grill Grange, 1860, Shelley's great friend, the novelist, Thomas Love Peacock wrote of a community of feelings, habits, and diet as the defining characteristics of human society in its many different forms, and these words remain as true today as when they were written. What we eat mattered as much then as it does now, and diet was an important site of the cultural contention and controversy prompting much debate in the early 19th century. The romantic thinker who had the most to say about diet was Peacock's close friend, the poet Shelley. Peacock, as Robert Browning put it, saw Shelley plain, in a relationship which lasted from 1812 to the poet's death at the age of 29 in 1822. For Shelley, plain living and diet were all important, And indeed, he considered what we eat to be at the heart of human culture and civilization. In the notes to his long narrative poem, Queen Mab, 1813, which contains much of his politically incendiary writing, the poet declares that the depravity of the physical and moral nature of man originated in his unnatural habits of life. The most unnatural of all human practices for Shelley were eating meat and cooking food. The sight of bloody juices, he maintained, filled him with horror and disgust. For his wife Mary, in her novel Frankenstein, 1818, it is a sign of the monster's initial virtue before he goes to the bad, before the misery made him a fiend that he naturally adopts the vegetable diet and does not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut his appetite. Shelley was notorious in his day as a proponent of atheism. He was also known as an advocate for the vegetable diet, another position often seen as near-lunatic in the late Georgian age. One of the pioneers of Western vegetarian philosophers, Shelley maintained that the structure of the human frame, then, is one fitted to a pure vegetable diet. The wise, he declares, should satisfy their hunger at the ever-furnished table of vegetable nature, with all its healthsome benefits. There is no disease, bodily or mental, which adoption of vegetable diet and pure water has not infallibly mitigated. The British should also put aside the luxurious fruits of the empire, no spices from India, no wines from Portugal, Spain, France, or Madeira. In an argument with a decidedly modern anti-imperialist tinge, Shelley argued for none of those multitudinous articles of luxury for which every corner of the globe is rifled. In Shelley's moral universe, culture, diet, and politics are intertwined. William Blake also saw diet moral terms, expressing a conviction in the Proverbs of Hell that all wholesome food is caught without a net or trap. For several of the Romantics, the origin of one's food was an important moral issue, how it was provided, where it came from, and the related insistence that food should be obtained without compromising one's individual morality ethically sourced, as we would call it now. For Shelley, this meant abstaining from eating that which once had animal life. But this was by no means a unanimous opinion. For Shelley's mentor, the radical journalist and poet Lee Hunt, for instance, eating meat and fish was acceptable, provided the food was killed without cruelty. Hunt ate fish, for example, "'But he had compassion for the creature. "'That fish, in his words, "'were made for man's pleasure and diet, was undeniable, "'but they should be caught and killed quickly and humanely, "'in a net, rather than in the angling slow death. "'Hunt, indeed, strongly disapproved of angling "'as a sport which tortured living creatures. "'The anglers boast of the innocence of their pastime, "'yet it puts fellow creatures to the torture.' Death is common to all, rights Hunt, in undeniable words. And a trout speedily killed by a man may suffer no worse fate than from the jaws of a pike. What offended Hunt was the element of play, of sport in fishing. It is the mode, the lingering cat-like cruelty of the angler's sport that renders it unworthy. This attempt to divorce diet from cruelty was also shared by Lord Byron. "'who, though he did not espouse the vegetarian diet endorsed by his friend Shelley, "'certainly shared his other friend Hunt's objection to angling. "'Net fishing, trawling, etc., he maintained, are more humane and useful, but angling. "'Likely, Hunt, Byron had no objection to eating fish, nor to humane ways of killing them, "'but angling he saw as cruel, and the angler beyond the moral pale.'" Far from being the contemplator-lover of nature depicted in Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler, 1653-76, a book much loved in the Romantic period, he's actually both cruel and greedy. Let us turn from the subject of what we should and should not allow in our diets to the matter of diet in the weight-loss sense, from lean Wordsworth to latterly portly Coleridge. The romantics had different figures and different metabolisms, and indeed, different lifestyles. Some dieted, some had no need. The tireless pedestrian, William Wordsworth, I love a public road. Few sights there are that please me more. Did not need to watch his weight, but Lord Byron, the champion dieter of the romantic poets, did. The author's cousin Mary Loveday once recorded a meeting with the poet where Byron told her that he would rather not exist than be large. This starving system, she wrote cheerfully, will probably bring him to an early grave. Byron did, of course, go to that early grave, and it is at least possible that his lordship's diet and and up-and-down weight weakened his resistance to the fever which saw him off alongside the leeches applied by his doctors, which bled Byron's strength out on his deathbed. A churchwarden who was present at the opening of Byron's tomb in the 1930s and who saw the poet's body, in a decent state considering its owner had died a century before on account of a preservative used in his body in its final journey from Greece to Nottinghamshire, described the corpse as that of a good-looking man putting on a bit of weight, and suffering the vagaries of middle age. He'd gone bald. He was quite naked, you know. Byron had a long and vexed relationship with food, with the principal problem what an early biographer called his morbid propensity to fatten. At Trinity, his Cambridge college, he frequently pursued a diet, which might be best described as a severe one, with cracker biscuits and soda water and unappetizing portions of potatoes marinated in vinegar, featuring largely. Byron had himself weighed several times at the giant scales of the Vitners, Barry Brothers and Rudd of St. James, Piccadilly, where Nelson and Wellington were also customers. Byron was on the corpulent side, 13 stone, 12 pound, in 1806, but managed a very lean but finely muscled nine stone five years later. Byron continued with diet regimes and weight fluctuations for the rest of his life, despite his conviction that over-dieting and the cigars he furiously smoked to suppress appetite was the cause of more than half of our maladies. And his fattishness did him little good in the long run. Byron's habits, as per so much of his remarkable lifestyle, teach us more or less negatively, offering perhaps insights on how not to diet with whimsical, self-constructed, ultimately unhealthy regimes such as he often used definitely to be avoided. But the eccentricities of a great man, like most of his other actions, are not without significance. If others had not been foolish, we should be so, as Blake puts it. In his aforesaid Proverbs of Hell, part of the poet's prose masterpiece, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 1793, a work which can offer great insight into what we put into our bodies. Without opposites, writes Blake, early in that work, is no progression. And taking his cue, one can argue that only by eating too much can you learn what is sufficient. We learn by and from opposites. Without opposites, writes Blake, early in that work, is no progression. And taking his cue, one can argue that only by eating too much can you learn what is sufficient. We learn by and from opposites. Some of the German philosophers of the 19th century, notably Johann Gottlieb Fichte and G.W.G. Hegel, had a word for this, dialectical. A threefold process, according to the former, where a thesis gives rise to its opposite, an antithesis, leading to a resolution or synthesis. So, the road of excess, as Blake puts it, leads to the palace of wisdom. You never know what is enough, he continues, and even more pertinently to the present discussion, unless you know what is more than enough. This is truth in diet as in drinking, and as in so much of life, experience of excess is the key to learning how much one should consume. Pigging out, like drunkenness, can be useful if it teaches us about our limits. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. There is no such thing, to borrow a phrase from the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, 1925-95, to as a body without organs. Humans need to think about their bodies and about their organs. Depend upon it, said S.T. Coleridge in one of his philosophical lectures, 1818-19. to Whatever is grand, whatever is truly organic and living, the whole is prior to the parts. The organic form, he continues, develops itself from within. The romantic preoccupation with inwardness applies just as much to the body as it does to the soul. And we know little about our bodies until we know what can go wrong with them, whether through ill health or ill treatment. So eat sensibly and learn from your mistakes. Know what is enough, to quote Blake's Proverbs once again, and know what is too much.